0: So right before I left Twitter uh, for a break, a video was going around, not for the first time, of a TV interview, I think from the early 90s, uh, when Camille Paglia first kind of uh, became famous um, off of her book, Sexual Personae, um, that dealt with her feud with Susan Sontag, who had been an early hero of hers. Sontag had been a, a sort of general cultural critic in the 60s and 70s uh, before kind of moving on to novels um, and political activism, rather daffy sort of political activism in my mind, but um, uh, Polia had kind of turned on her and said that she wasted her uh, her promise um, and that she was not a talented novelist and uh, that Palia herself was the new Sontag of the 90s and so on and uh, they interviewed Sontag about this and Sontag said that she had no idea who Palia was and so this got people kind of picking sides as to who they thought was like a true narcissist or whose writing they preferred and uh, you know, forced to pick sides. I'm, I'm team Paglia, um, with some reservations. Um, but it has to be said that that book, Sexual Persona, was, is one of the ones that was very formative for me and kind of led me on the path to where I am today, even though my evolution has kind of gone somewhat of a different way. And I would disagree with her on a number of things, but it was really important. And I, You know, I basically got through college by kind of stealing her takes on various things. I, you know, uh, wrote a paper on uh, Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights that was more or less just a rip-off, you know, um, know, borderline borderline plagiarism. Most of my papers in college were, to be honest, but uh, whatever. It doesn't matter now. Um, But I also... Uh, did read early on Sontag's essay Against Interpretation which is probably her most well-known and the book that uh, is a collection of essays that's titled that, that's the title essay Um, and that was also somewhat formative I mean I was very uh, excited by the idea then um, that art is something that exceeds anything that one might say about it But anyway, I don't want to talk too much about that uh, little rivalry of theirs, the drama. Uh, The important thing is that it reminded me that I had wanted to uh, do that essay for the show for a while. Uh, Why? Well, um, at this point, you know, I feel a little called out by the idea because I do think interpretation is something that I do uh, somewhat frequently, and I do draw out symbols from various works of art in order to talk about them, sometimes somewhat abstractly. And I like to think I do this without doing damage to the works in question or reducing them. Um, And I've, I've spoken up in defense of teaching symbolism in literature and uh, there's a there's a meme that you may have encountered Uh, I think it comes from Tumblr it's a very Tumblr-esque kind of thing as like a Venn diagram of what the author meant and what your teacher thinks the author meant this is obviously from a high school student um, which is where you first get Exposed to this kind of idea, usually through something like Great, The Great Gatsby, uh, which has a, a number of interpretable symbols going on throughout the book, the famous eyes of T.J. Eckelberg on the billboard and that green light across the bay that Gatsby likes to stare at. Um, and so teachers will assign students to write about that kind of stuff. But the the meme comments uh, what the teacher thinks the author meant when the author writes the curtains were blue. They think that the curtains symbolize depression and sadness and lack of hope and, and so on, whereas what the author meant was the curtains are fucking blue. Um, so I think this is a great example of what I'm just going to call the naive attitude about reading. Um, what happens as a uh, someone who likes stories, um, whether they be in novels or film or whatever, uh, but they tend to read for plot and for uh, character usually in the terms of how sympathetic characters are, or how much you can identify with a particular character. And the teacher is trying to reveal other elements, thematic, uh, and this is not a word they would employ at the high school level when it's first introduced, but semiotic, right, having to do with signs, Uh, basically having to do with meanings of the text rather than uh, the kind of like utilitarian functions of plot. Um, now, I've tweeted about this and I've said that I think even at that level, students are doing uh, analysis of science, but they, they're not aware of what they're doing yet. It's, it's a kind of more natural thing that develops over you know, your young years when you're reading been reading my son the three bears over and over again I have no idea what he thinks about this but he's obsessed with it he loves this book but other than the story it's obviously teaching him certain things about number dimension and kind of relativity and sensation you have too hot too cold too soft too hard actually do like a Levi straussian reading of that pretty easily um it's very easily uh can be conceived in structuralist terms um but anyway um you know susan sontag also was against doing any interpretation of the work of art and so perhaps we're dealing with a uh you know, our our great friend the bell curve meme with the bottom wit and the top wit believing the same thing while the midwit, you know. The midwit tries to interpret, no, no, stories have meaning. They have a deeper level. But on the left, the dumb guy says the curtains are fucking blue, and the smart guy on the right says the curtains are fucking blue. Maybe that's what we're dealing with here. Um... But I think that's plenty of preamble, so let's, uh, let's get to the text itself. Content is a glimpse of something, an encounter like a flash. It's very tiny, very tiny content. Willem de Kooning in an interview. It is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. The mystery of the world is the visible, not the invisible. Oscar Wilde in a letter. If you don't know de Kooning, he uh, was a painter. Oscar Wilde, of course, being the uh, writer and playwright, uh, famous for the importance of being earnest, and probably the novel The Picture of Dorian Gray would be his most well-known works, um, most associated with uh, aestheticism and decadence uh, in the very late 19th century. Um, so. She's already aligning herself with kind of the uh, position of the esthete and the art connoisseur. Um, Now onto the text itself. The earliest experience of art must have been that it was incantatory, magical. Art was an instrument of ritual. CF the paintings in the caves at Lascaux, Altamira, Miao. La Pesiga, etc. The earliest theory of art, that of the Greek philosophers, proposed that art was mimesis, imitation of reality. It is at this point that the peculiar question of the value of art arose, for the mimetic theory, by its very terms, challenges art to justify itself. Plato, who proposed the theory, seems to have done so in order to rule that the value of art is dubious. Since he considered ordinary material things themselves as mimetic objects, imitations of transcendent forms or structures, even the best painting of a bed would only be an imitation of an imitation. For Plato, art is neither particularly useful, the painting of a bed is no good to sleep on, nor in the strict sense true. And Aristotle's arguments in defense of art, do not really challenge Plato's view that all art is an elaborate trompelel, and therefore a lie. Uh, Trompelel is uh, like an illusion, like an optical illusion. But he does dispute Plato's idea that art is useless. Lie or no, art has a certain value, according to Aristotle, because it is a form of therapy. Art is useful, after all, Aristotle counters, medicinally useful, in that it arouses and purges dangerous emotions. In Plato and Aristotle, the mimetic theory of art goes hand-in-hand with the assumption that art is always figurative. But advocates of the mimetic theory need not close their eyes to a decorative and abstract art. The fallacy that art is necessarily a realism can be modified or scrapped without ever moving outside the problem delimited by the mimetic theory. The fact is, all Western consciousness of and reflection upon art have remained within the confines staked out by the Greek theory of art, such as mimesis or representation. It is through this theory that art as such, above and beyond given works of art becomes problematic in need of defense. And it is the defense of art which gives birth to the odd vision by which something we have learned to call form is separated off from something we have learned to call content into the well-intentioned move which makes content essential and form accessory. Even in modern times when most artists and critics have discarded the theory of art as a representation of an outer reality in favor of the theory of art as subjective expression, the main feature of the mimetic theory persists. Whether we conceive of the work of art on the model of a picture Art as a picture of reality, or in the model of a statement, art as the statement of the artist, content still comes first. The content may have changed. It may now be less figurative or less lucidly realistic, but it is still assumed that a work of art is its content. Or, as it's usually put today, that a work of art by definition says something what X is saying is, what X is trying to say is, what X said is, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, it's the end of that section, and you definitely may be reminded of, of you know, high school essay writing, where you might be asked to uh, interpret what Fitzgerald is saying in The Great Gatsby, either of the novel as a whole or by something like The Green Light. What does that say? So she's making an identification of, of the idea that art is essentially mimetic um, or representative of an outer or prior reality with the idea that it is fundamentally a statement uh, kind of thesis about that reality uh, and therefore that it can be uh, reduced to some kind of statement. Um, I do want to say something here about the idea that Art was initially magical or incantatory, and this is uh, opposed to the theory of art that emerged, which claimed that art was mimetic. But she references the cave paintings, and it's most likely that those paintings are, in fact, mimetic. Uh, they do depict uh, wild animals, um, actually rather vibrant pictures of horses and buffalo or, or some kind of wild oxen or something along that line. Uh, some kind of wild bull, at least. And I, when I read this a long time ago, I wrote Fraser in the margin here, um, and I think why while I did that is that if you read J.G. Fraser, the uh, author of The Golden Bough, um, who writes extensively about uh, primitive ritual and magic you you find that magic is actually uh, for the society that believes in it uh, It's about as pragmatic and utilitarian as anything in our society Uh, it's it's meant to do things Um, may not be meant to say something it's actually more practical than that it's it's meant to you know uh, give you information or it's meant to uh, you know it's meant to give you a successful hunt or uh, a good winter or good crop yield, or, you know, find out who murdered somebody, it's, uh, it's useful. (laughs) Unlike Wilde's idea of art as being perfectly useless. Okay, on to section two. None of us can ever retrieve that innocence before all theory when art knew no need to justify itself. When one did not ask of a work of art, what it said because one knew or thought one knew what it did. From now to the end of consciousness we are stuck with the task of defending art. We can only quarrel with one or another means of defense. Indeed we have an obligation to overthrow any means of defending and justifying art which becomes particularly obtuse or onerous or insensitive to contemporary needs and practice. This is the case today with the very idea of content itself. Whatever it may have been in the past, the idea of content is today mainly a hindrance, a nuisance, a subtle or not so subtle philistinism. Though the actual developments in many arts may seem to be leading us away from the idea that a work of art is primarily its content, the idea still exerts an extraordinary hegemony. I want to suggest that this is because the idea is now perpetuated in the guise of a certain way of encountering works of art thoroughly ingrained among most people who take any of the arts seriously, with the overemphasis on the idea of content entails is the perennial, never consummated project of interpretation. And conversely, it is the habit of approaching works of art in order to interpret them that sustains the fancy that there really is such a thing as the content of a work of art. It's kind of interesting... Um, how that word content has evolved you hear that word all the time now but it has nothing to do with the old dichotomy of form and content you know form has to do with uh the material basis of the work of art the structure of the work of art um uh, and content is you know what is this work of art about um, a message a moral uh, some kind of uh, intellectual matter as opposed to material M- matter matter means material but anyway um, whereas con- when we say content now it refers to uh, basically abstract stuff <laughs> Gener- a generic product. Anything can be content. Um, it's what is produced um, for consumption by an audience. I mean, it's about the most generic and abstract category that we have for cultural production now. Um, and the goal appears to be to produce as much content as possible um, in order to gain social capital and win uh, in the attention economy. Uh, But it really is neutral as to whether, you know, there is in fact any intellectual or aesthetic content to this content. Um, I did once have a kind of joke tweet that everybody's trying to make content. Nobody's trying to make form. Anyway, on to section three. Of course, I don't mean interpretation in the broadest sense, the sense in which Nietzsche rightly says, quote, there are no facts, only interpretations. By interpretation, I mean here a conscious act of the mind, which illustrates a certain code, certain rules of interpretation. So I actually think this is uh, something that gets ignored by people who kind of cite this as uh, saying one should never interpret anything (laughs) she she actually is saying that she's not saying that the broadest sense of interpretation I suppose would be fine but uh, it's not clear what she means by referencing Nietzsche here Um, this is kind of a statement of his perspectivism there's no like objective fact in the world Um, uh, we might restate it now, as there there are no facts, only feelings. Um, I dare say what she means by interpretation. The broadest sense uh, requires some interpretation. But anyway. Directed to art, interpretation means plucking a set of elements, the X, the Y, the Z, and so forth, from the whole work. The task of interpretation is virtually one of translation. The interpreter says, look, don't you see that X is really or really means, A, that Y is really B, that C is really Z, the curtains are fucking blue. What situation could prompt this curious project for transforming a text? History gives us the materials for an answer. Interpretation first appears in the culture of late classical antiquity when the power and credibility of myth had been broken by the realistic view of the world introduced by scientific enlightenment. Uh, those are somewhat anachronistic terms. I don't think she's wrong exactly, but when she says scientific enlightenment, uh, she's not really referring to like the 17th and 18th century. she's referring to more like the 3rd and 4th. Once the question that haunts post-mythic consciousness, that of the seemliness of religious symbols, had been asked, the ancient texts were in their pristine form no longer acceptable. The interpretation was summoned to reconcile the ancient texts to modern demands. Thus the Stoics, to accord with their view that the gods had to be moral, allegorized away the rude features of Zeus and his boisterous clan in Homer's epics. What Homer really designated by the adultery of Zeus with Leto, they explained, was the union between power and wisdom. In the same vein, Philo of Alexandria interpreted the literal, historical narratives of the Hebrew Bible as spiritual paradigms. The story of the exodus from Egypt, the wandering in the desert for forty years, and the entry into the Promised Land, said Philo, was really an allegory of the individual soul's emancipation, tribulations, and final deliverance. Interpretation thus presupposes a discrepancy between the clear meaning of the text and demands of later readers. It seeks to resolve that discrepancy. The situation is that for some reason, a text has become unacceptable, yet it cannot be discarded. Interpretation is a radical strategy for conserving an old text, which is thought too precious to repudiate by revamping it. The interpreter, without actually erasing or rewriting the text, is altering it, but he can't admit to doing this. He claims to be only making it intelligible by disclosing its true meaning. However far the interpreters alter the text, another notorious example is the rabbinic and Christian spiritual interpretations of the clearly erotic Song of Songs. They must claim to be reading off a sense that is already there. I think there's something really plausible to what she's talking about here. Interpretation is required when you can't dispense of a text because it's central, but the values and moral intellectual climate of the society has changed so that the apparent uh, meaning, literal meaning, of a text uh, would no longer suffice uh, if one wants to keep that text central. And so you get apologetics. That's basically what she's saying, that interpretation is apologetics. Interpretation in our own time, however, is even more complex. For the the contemporary zeal for the project of interpretation is often prompted not by piety toward the troublesome text, which may conceal an aggression, but by an open aggressiveness and overt contempt for appearances. The old style of interpretation was insistent, but respectful. It erected another meaning on top of the literal one. The modern style of interpretation excavates, and as it excavates, destroys. It digs behind the text to find a subtext which is the true one. The most celebrated and influential modern doctrines, those of Marx and Freud, actually amount to elaborate systems of hermeneutics, aggressive and impious theories of interpretation. I mean, that's obviously true. All observable phenomena are bracketed in Freud's phrase as manifest content. This manifest content must be probed and pushed aside to find the true meaning, the latent content beneath, for Marx, social events like revolutions and wars, for Freud, the events of individual lives like neurotic symptoms and slips of the tongue, as well as texts like a dream or a work of art, all are treated as occasions for interpretation. According to Marx and Freud, these events only seem to be intelligible. Actually, they have no meaning without interpretation. To understand is to interpret, and to interpret is to restate the phenomenon in effect to find an equivalent for it. Thus, interpretation is not, as most people assume, an absolute value, a gesture of mind situated in some timeless of capabilities. Interpretation itself must be evaluated with an historical view of human consciousness. In some cultural contexts, interpretation is a liberating act, it is a means of revising, of transvaluing, of escaping the dead past. In other cultural contexts, it is reactionary, impertinent, cowardly, stifling. Um, Yeah, so again, against interpretation turns out to be not unequivocally against interpretation. It's a matter of whether interpretation is progressive or reactionary, given the historical situation. And I'll have to weigh in on where I think we're at now, later. Four. Today is such a time and the project of interpretation is largely reactionary, stifling. Like the fumes of the automobile and of heavy industry which befoul the urban atmosphere, the effusion of interpretations of art today poisons our sensibilities. In a culture whose already classical dilemma is the hypertrophy of the intellect at the expense of energy and sensual capability, interpretation is the revenge of the intellect upon art. Even more, it is the revenge of the intellect upon the world. To interpret is to impoverish, to deplete the world, in order to set up a shadow world of meanings. It is to turn the world into this world, this world, as if there were any other. Well, I'm afraid there is, Susan. The world, our world, is depleted, impoverished enough, away with all duplicates of it, until we again experience more immediately what we have. And I think this is really interesting, this concern with not setting up a shadow world of meanings, um, not duplicating the world, because this also was the perennial concern of Plato and Neoplatonists, of uh, being against art itself because it was setting up a shadow world. Um, you know which was an impoverishment impoverishment of of the actual world, the actual world not being the visible material world, but uh, the ideal world um, so but for her you know the the real world is the world of becoming and the senses, not the world of being and the ideas um, so to interpret is not to you know move upward from the Contingent and almost random world of becoming to the necessary world of being. It's to simply set up a kind of uh, abstraction, uh, and to abstract is to take out of something. Um, So, yeah, I consider this like an inverted Platonism in a way. Five. In most modern instances, interpretation amounts to the Philistine refusal to leave the work of art alone. Real art has the capacity to make us nervous. By reducing the work of art to its content and then interpreting that, one tames the work of art. Interpretation makes art manageable, conformable. This Philistinism of interpretation is more rife in literature than in any other art. For decades now, literary critics have understood it to be their task to translate the elements of the poem or play or novel or story into something else. Sometimes a writer will be so uneasy before the naked power of his art that he will install within the work itself, albeit with a little shyness, a touch of the good taste of irony, the clear and explicit interpretation of it. Thomas Mann is an example of such an over-cooperative author. In the case of more stubborn authors, the critic is only too happy to perform the job. The work of Kafka, for example, has been subjected to a mass ravishment by no less than three armies of interpreters. Those who read Kafka as a social allegory see case studies of the frustrations and insanity of modern bureaucracy and its ultimate issuance in the totalitarian state. Those who read Kafka as a psychoanalytic allegory see desperate revelations of Kafka's fear of his father his castration anxieties, his sense of his own impotence, his thraldom to his dreams. Those who read Kafka as a religious allegory explain that K in the castle is trying to gain access to heaven, that Joseph K in the trial is being judged by the inerex- the inerexible and mysterious justice of God. Another oeuvre that has attracted interpreters like leeches is that of Samuel Beckett. Beckett's delicate dramas of the withdrawn consciousness, pared down to essentials, cut off often represented as physically immobilized, are read as a statement about modern man's alienation from meaning or from God, or as an allegory of psychopathology. Proust, Joyce, Faulkner, Rilke, Lawrence, Gide. One can go on, citing author after author. The list is endless of those around whom thick encrustations of interpretation have taken hold, but it should be noted that interpretation is not simply the compliment that mediocrity pays to genius. It is indeed the modern way of understanding something, and is applied to works of every quality. Thus, in the notes that Elliot Kazan published on his production of A Streetcar Named Desire, it becomes clear that, in order to direct the play, Kazan had to discover that Stanley Kowalski represented the sensual and vengeful barbarism that was engulfing our culture, while Blanche Dubois was Western civilization, poetry, delicate apparel, dim lighting, refined feelings and all, though a little worse for the wear, to be sure. Tennessee Williams' forceful psychological drama now became intelligible. It was about something, about the decline of Western civilization. Apparently, were it to go on being a play about a handsome brute named Stanley Kowalski and a faded mangy belle named Blanche Dubois, it would not be manageable. So my first encounter with this way of looking at things um, was, was not actually um, The Great Gatsby. Uh, I actually had a unique situation in my English class in which my teacher let me uh, pick my own books, and I read Kafka's *The Metamorphosis* uh, in a full volume edition that had a bunch of essays included with it, and it did actually have all of these different interpretations from a Marxist perspective, from from a Freudian perspective, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought I'd never really like seen that. That was my like shattering of the naive view that you know was. A story is about what it appears to be about, um, and that the curtains are fucking blue. But um, you know, it had a twofold effect. I thought it was really interesting, uh, particularly the way that the uh, the Freudian one tended to uh, bring out these uh, symbols within the work. Um, I remember particularly the painting of the woman with the fur coat or maybe it was a photograph um and the apples that were thrown at gregor and one lodged into the his side uh, which are very curious things in in the book and uh kafka has a lot of stuff like this um and sort of giving a psychological reading of the meaning of these things which are otherwise just very uh, just very strange things and i was excited that one could um do this like it it made aspects of the work sort of shine forth in a certain way but at the same time by including um, you know these different interpretations from different perspectives together um, one after the other you know it also drove home the point that there's no final ultimate reading of what the work is and says um, that, that it can hold multiple interpretations uh, which are all valid um, but according to Sontag this is an impoverishment that kind of puts the work in a, in a straitjacket. Um but it was very clear to me after that that there was always something in a Kafka story that was in excess of any given interpretation of it and Kafka in particular has never been manageable in this way by giving, you know, one overarching uh, reading. 6. It doesn't matter whether artists intend or don't intend for their works to be interpreted. Perhaps Tennessee Williams thinks Streetcar is about what Kazan thinks it to be about. It may be that Cocteau in The Blood of a Poet and in Orpheus wanted the elaborate readings which have been given these films in terms of Freudian symbolism and social critique but the merit of these works certainly lies elsewhere than in their meanings. Indeed, it is precisely to the extent that Williams's plays and Cocteau's films do suggest these portentous meanings that they are defective, false, contrived, lacking in conviction. From interviews, it appears that René and Robe Grier conspicuously designed last year at Marienbad to accommodate a multiplicity of equally plausible interpretations, but the interpretation to interpret Bad should be resisted what matters in Bad* is the pure, untranslatable, sensuous immediacy of some of its images and its rigorous, if narrow, solutions to certain problems of cinematic form. Again, Ingmar Bergman may have meant the tank rumbling down the empty street in the silence as a phallic symbol, but if he did, it was a foolish thought. Never trust the teller, trust the tale, said Lawrence. Taken as a brute object as an immediate sensory equivalent for the mysterious, abrupt, armored happenings going on inside the hotel. That sequence with the tank is the most striking moment in the film. Those who reach for a Freudian interpretation of the tank are only expressing their lack of response to what is there on the screen. It is always the case that it, that interpretation of this type indicates a dissatisfaction, conscious or unconscious, with the work, a wish to replace it by something else. Interpretation based on a the highly dubious theory that a work of art is composed of items of content violates art and makes art into an article for use for arrangement into a mental scheme of categories and i do think it ought to be said that these like more famous schools of interpretation uh, like marxism and freudianism um, they have other agendas right like Marxism is a political philosophy, it's not a philosophy of art. It, it includes a philosophy of art. Um, and Freudianism is a theory of the mind. Uh, it's also a political philosophy, but that's another subject. And, you know, so art is useful in that it reveals the mind, or art is useful in that it reveals um, something about, uh, you know, the political situation of a given time and place, Um and so that may account for the this apparent desire to replace the work of art with something else, or to kind of like hostilely, uh, you know, pin it down to to something uh, in particular. 7. Interpretation does not, of course, always prevail. In fact, a great deal of today's art may be understood as motivated by a flight from interpretation. To avoid interpretation, art may become parody, or it may become abstract, or it may become merely decorative, or it may become non-art. The flight from interpretation seems particularly a feature of modern painting. Abstract painting is the attempt to have, in the ordinary sense, no content. Since there is no content, there can be no interpretation. This is wrong, of course, but I suppose that's the intent. Pop art works by the opposite means to the same result, by using a content so blatant, so what it is, it too ends by being uninterpretable. And I'm pretty sure she has in mind Andy Warhol here, I mean, obviously the most famous uh, pop artist, but you know the soup can is a fucking soup can i suppose is the idea a great deal of modern poetry as well starting from the great experiments of french poetry including the movement that is misleadingly called symbolism to put silence into poems and to reinstate the magic of the word has escaped from the rough grip of interpretation i again I want to highlight the use of the word magic uh, in this essay and uh, say that it's a misleading use. I, be- I would replace the word magic with mystification because magic, I mean, even a magician now in a demystified time uses magic to do Things and has intent in magical practice. No magician would say of magic what the modern poet Auden said of poetry that it makes nothing happen. Anyway, the most recent revolution in contemporary taste in poetry. The revolution that has deposed Eliot and elevated Pound represents a turning away from content in poetry in the old sense, an impatience with what made modern poetry prey to the zeal of interpreters. I think that Eliot versus Pound thing probably needs some explication, although I'm not able to make it because I don't know what she means. Um, Eliot and Pound were part of the same modernist revolution, Um, but I'm, I'm I'm not a Pound guy. Um, there's very little pound that I know well. so I'm speaking mainly of the situation in America, of course. Interpretation runs rampant here in those arts, with a feeble and negligible avant-garde, fiction, and the drama. Most American novelists and playwrights are really either journalists or gentlemen sociologists and psychologists. They're writing the literary equivalent of program music, And so rudimentary, uninspired, and stagnant has been the sense of what might be done with form in fiction and drama, that even when the content isn't simply information, news, it is still particularly visible, handier, more exposed. To the extent that novels and plays in America, unlike poetry and painting and music, don't reflect any interesting concern with changes in their form, these arts remain prone, To assault by interpretation. But programmatic avant-gardism, which is meant mostly experiments with form at the expense of content, is not the only defense against the infestation of art by interpretations. At least, I hope not. For this would be to commit art to being perpetually on the run. It also perpetuates the very distinction between form and content, which is ultimately an illusion. Uh, I agree with this, by the way, uh, but I will be talking about that later because it leads me to different conclusions than Sontag's. Ideally, it is possible to elude the interpreters in another way. By making works of art whose surface is so unified and clean, whose momentum is so rapid, whose address is so direct that the work can be just what it is. Is this possible now? It does happen in films, I believe. This is why cinema is the most alive the most exciting, the most important of all art forms right now. Perhaps the way one tells how alive a particular art form is, is by the latitude it gives for making mistakes in it, and still being good. For example, a few of the films of Bergman, though crammed with lame messages about the modern spirit, thereby inviting interpretations, still triumph over the pretentious intentions of their director. In Winter Light and The Silence, the beauty and visual sophistication of the images subvert before our eyes the callow pseudo-intellectuality of the story, and some of the dialogue. The most remarkable instance of this sort of discrepancy is the work of D.W. Griffith. In good films, there's always a directness that entirely frees us from the itch to interpret. Many old Hollywood films, like those of Cukor walsh hawks and countless other directors have this liberating anti-symbolic quality no less than the best work of the new european directors like truffaut's shoot the piano player and jules and jim Godard's breathless vivre sa vie antonioni's l'aventura and Olmi's the fiance's the fact that films have not been overrun by interpreters Is in part due simply to the newness of cinema as an art. It also owes to the happy accident that films for such a long time were just movies, in other words, that they were understood to be part of mass as opposed to high culture, and were left alone by most people with minds. Then too, there is always something other than content in the cinema to grab hold of, for those who want to analyze. For the cinema, unlike the novel, possesses a vocabulary of forms, the explicit, complex, and discussable technology of camera movements, cutting, and composition of frame that goes into the making of a film. Yeah, I don't know if it's true that the novel doesn't have a vocabulary of forms or form. Uh, It definitely does, but the novel is very plastic uh, and then multifarious as a form. Um, There are many aesthetics Uh, Many rules you can apply to the novel, um, so much so that people are always declaring the novel dead. Uh, It's not clear what kind of novel they mean. Um, They're always declaring that this or that book is not a novel, um, which may be true. Um, uh, But film has a a plethora of techniques that one can talk about. Um, Even just like normal people can refer to something like cinematography which is a little bit vague but it is something that's in common parlance of moviegoers and it's it's not going to get the average novel reader offhandedly commenting about the polyphony of the novel or something like that eight what kind of criticism of commentary on the arts is desirable today for i'm not saying that works of art are ineffable That they cannot be described or paraphrased. They can be. The question is how? What would criticism look like that would serve the work of art, not usurp its place? What is needed first is more attention to form in art. If excessive stress on content provokes the arrogance of interpretations, more extended and more thorough descriptions of form would silence. What is needed is a vocabulary a descriptive rather than prescriptive vocabulary for forms. There's a footnote here. One of the difficulties is that our idea of form is spatial. The Greek metaphors for form are all derived from notions of space. This is why we have a more ready vocabulary of forms for the spatial than for the temporal arts. The exception among the temporal arts, of course, is the drama. Perhaps this is because the drama is a narrative, i.e. temporal form, that extends itself visually and pictorially upon a stage. What we don't have yet is a poetics of the novel, any clear notion of the forms of narration. Perhaps film criticism will be the occasion of a breakthrough here, since films are primarily a visual form, yet they are also a subdivision of literature. I just want to point out as a, an aside that, um, you know, in the history of things, uh, descriptive terms can easily flip over into prescriptive terms and one can easily imagine a vocabulary of form that would become uh, prescriptive in in the sense that you know we we judge things as good or bad based on how they adhere to certain forms that are preferred by a particular era Uh, and you know conversely couldn't we also imagine a discussion uh, a discourse and vocabulary about content or meaning or ideas or interpretation, which was also descriptive rather than prescriptive, and that I believe is a project that I'm pursuing myself. Moving on. <clears throat> the best criticism, and it is uncommon, is of this sort that dissolves considerations of content into those of form. On film, drama and painting respectively, I can think of Erwin Panofsky. Panofsky's essay, Style and Medium in the Motion Pictures, Northrop Frye's essay, A Conspectus of Dramatic Genres, and by the way, I'm very influenced by Frye, and I think Frye is a good model uh, in literature. Definitely a formalist, but a very, very imaginative one. pierre Francastel's essay, The Destruction of a Plastic Space, Roland Barthes' book on Racine and his two essays on Robegrier are examples of formal analysis applied to the work of a single author. The best essays in Eric Auerbach's Mimesis, like The Scar of Odysseus, are also of this type. An example of formal analysis applied simultaneously to genre and author is Walter Benjamin's essay, The Storyteller, Reflections on the Works of Nikolai Leskov. Equally valuable would be acts of criticism, which would supply a really accurate, sharp, loving description of the appearance of a work of art. This seems even harder to do than formal analysis. Some of Manny Farber's film criticism, Dorothy Van Gendt's essay The Dickens' World, A View from Todders, Randall Jarrell's essay on Walt Whitman, are among the rare examples of what I mean. These are essays which reveal the sensuous surface of art without mucking about in it. There's a real concern in this essay with violation of surfaces. Um, I'll say more about this, but if you talk about surface, you're also talking about depth. Uh, so it's a it's a binary, and it, they go together. On the other hand, I've I've often thought of, uh, in particular, the works of Vladimir Nabokov as uh, works of fiction that are like all surface, so that if you try to peer into the depth, you just get another surface, just these like, I don't know, like subcutaneous layers, like it's all skin, you know. Anyway, nine. Transparency is the highest, most liberating value in art. Uh, So the metaphor is shifting here from tactile to visual. And in criticism today, Transparence means experiencing the luminousness of the thing itself, of things being what they are. This is the greatness of, for example, the films of Brisson and Ozu and Renoir's The Rules of the Game. Once upon a time, say for Dante, it must have been a revolutionary and creative move to design works of art so that they might be experienced on several levels. Now it is not. It reinforces the principle of redundancy, That is the principal affliction of modern life. Once upon a time when high art was scarce, it must have been a revolutionary and creative move to interpret works of art. Now it is not. What we decidedly do not need now is further to assimilate art into thought or worse yet art into culture. Interpretation takes the sensory experience of the work of art for granted and proceeds from there. This cannot be taken for granted now. Think of the sheer multiplication of works of art available to every one of us, superadded to the conflicting tastes and odors and sights of the urban environment that bombard our senses, ours as a culture based on excess, on overproduction. The result is a steady loss of sharpness in our sensory experience. All the conditions of modern life, its material plenitude, its sheer crowdedness conjoin to dull our sensory faculties and it is in the light of the condition of our senses, our capacities, rather than those of another age, that the task of the critic must be assessed. What is important now is to recover our senses. We must learn to see more, to hear more, to feel more. Our task is not to find the maximum amount of content in a work of art, much less to squeeze more content out of the work than is already there. Our task is to cut back content so that we can see the thing at all. The aim of all commentary on art now should be to make works of art and by analogy our own experience more rather than less real to us. The function of criticism should be to show how it is what it is, even that it is what it is, rather than to show what it means. 10 in place of a hermeneutics we need an erotics of art okay so that's the end of the essay Um, great ending that final section being one line uh, gives the thesis of the essay right right at the end very memorable Um, hermeneutics by the way just means interpretation Um, and i'm actually uh, pretty glad that the essay is called against interpretation and not against hermeneutics. Uh, that makes it a popular uh, essay um, that you know ordinary readers can pick up um, and and enjoy and think about. I mean, I re- first read this when I was in my early twenties, so I was a much less sophisticated reader uh, then, and probably actually learned the term hermeneutics from this essay, now that I think about it. The question, of course, is what is an erotics of art? What does that mean? Um, And did she ever follow up on that? Did she develop that? Um, Maybe, but, you know, erotics is a thing that cannot be practiced in general, in the abstract, uh, lest you become, well, think about erotics in real life. Erotics is practiced very personally. It's between people. If you're trying to do theory in erotics, you're doing something really, in my view, very cringe, like PUA stuff, which might quote-unquote work, uh, but it's not the real thing, not in a real way. Um, erotics is playful and open and personal um, and also meaningful, I would say. But yeah, so there's no erotics of art in terms of a general theory, not even a vocabulary like she's talking about. Um, And Some people do this very well. I mean, I think in some of her essays, she does this very well on the things that she's passionate about. Um, Sontag, by the way, if you look through the contents of this Book, you can see, you know, her deal was more or less um, bringing the European uh, post war high art sensibility to America and popularizing it. Um, You know, it's all existentialism, uh, new wave cinema, critical theory, kind of the early sort of structuralist stuff I am familiar with a lot of this but it's not my bag in general I've become less hostile to French theory over the years and I do get stuff out of it but I still prefer American open optimistic pragmatic uh, stuff the sort of thing Camille Paglia uh delineated when she talked about the North American intellectual tradition and included people like Marshall McLuhan um, I mean Harold Bloom is on there even though Bloom, Bloom is far from like a optimist in any kind of way but he's he's in kind of a drag in some respects but and he's not you know funny um, which Pollya sometimes is but anyway before uh, kind of getting into final comments on this uh, I want to read a couple of poems American poems in accordance with my uh, chauvinistic bias which kind of get at some of the same ideas that she's alluding to here see Sontag is in a way she's not really against the trend of modern art she's just articulating what it's doing um but what we'll see in these examples here. So the first poem is Ars Poetica by Archibald MacLeish. A poem should be palpable and mute as a globed fruit, dumb as old medallions to the thumb, silent as the sleeve-worn stone of casement ledges where the moss has grown. A poem should be wordless as the flight of birds, A poem should be motionless in time as the moon climbs, leaving as the moon releases twig by twig the night-entangled trees, leaving as the moon behind the winter leaves memory by memory the mind. A poem should be motionless in time as the moon climbs. A poem should be equal to not true. For all the history of grief, an empty doorway and a maple leaf. For love, the leaning grasses and two lights above the sea. A poem should not mean, but be. Okay, so it should be uh, obvious the connection between this and the Sontag essay. This is also against uh, meaning in poetry or art. The Ars Poetica title um, is borrowed from a famous ancient poem by the Roman poet Horace, uh, which was an instructive poem. uh, It's a poem about poetics. It says what constitutes good poetry and so on. Uh, A number of famous lines and concepts come out of this. It's probably the best uh, known work of classical literary criticism. Um, phrases you may have heard, like even Homer nods, come from that poem, and uh, the phrase delight and instruct, which is uh, a prescription for poetry, you know, that there are two functions of, of poetry, which is essentially pleasure and uh, learning, um, which I guess. Uh, you know the Sontag idea is pretty much focused on the delight exclusively. Um, But this wasn't uh, an exceptional thing in the ancient world. It used to be uh, poetry um, used to be a lot more practical in a certain way. Uh, Any kind of text really could theoretically take uh, the form of a poem Uh, philosophical, naturalistic, uh, you know, science texts basically could take, you know, the form of verse. Um, uh, But anyway, uh, what I wanted to point out about the MacLeish poem is that uh, it does not do, uh, it does not perform its own ideal. it says what poetry should be, um, which is to uh, merely be uh, without meaning. Um, but this poem clearly has meaning. It's it's a fairly didactic poem. Um, and there's a lot of shoulds in here. Um, it, it even prescribes things for poetry that uh, are impossible. Such as being motionless in time, poetry necessarily uh, exists in time; it unfolds over time. It says a poem should be wordless, um, which also is impossible. Um, but you may say that, you know, he does not mean that literally, but figuratively, uh, and that that's another way of saying, you know, it should be doing something and not uh, saying something. But this poem does say something. Uh, so there is this tension, um, not just a tension, but a contradiction between form and content that we're very aware of here. Now let's read another one, a very similar poem by Wallace Stevens called Of Mere Being the palm at the end of the mind beyond the last thought rises in the bronze decor a gold feathered bird sings in the palm without human meaning without human feeling a foreign song you know then that it is not the reason that makes us happy or unhappy the bird sings its feathers shine the palm stands on the edge of space The wind moves slowly in the branches. The birds' fire fangled feathers dangle down. To me, this poem succeeds a little bit more um, than the McLeish poem of uh, being the thing itself rather than an idea (laughs) about the thing. Stephen, there's another poem called Not Ideas About the Thing But the Thing Itself. there there is also the this odd thing in stevens of being uh you know it's very uh it's very aesthetically oriented and like meta poetic um but also there's a lot of phrases uh in stevens that seem very didactic also um but the general tenor of uh his poetry i think is uh really in line with uh what Sontag wants out of art uh, a line from another uh, poem of his which I've dealt with on this podcast um, called The Emperor of Ice Cream says let be be finale of seem which could very well have been another epigram for the Against Interpretation essay but I want to note here um this bird and birds are very common in Stevens's poetry. There's bird as well in Macleish's *Ars Poetica*. This is a nearly stock symbol in the history of poetry. Um, you know, birds are—they symbolize poetry and the poet. Why is that? Well, because they sing. And they're beautiful, and because they fly, they leave the earth, they leave the realm of the practical, and they rise toward the realm of the spiritual. But really, the singing is the important thing. You know, the bird has no, appar- apparently, to us, it seems, the bird has no reason. To sing, it just does. It just gets up in the morning and starts tweeting. He's just like me. Um, that's pretty much what the poet thinks about birds. Um, so whenever you hear see a bird, or read about a bird, or hear about a bird in a poem, that's more than likely what's going on. So this gets to my uh, point that I wanna. Uh, make, which is that knowing that this is a, a transhistorical meaning, though, um, and it's an interpretation of the poem, uh, which really helps us understand the poem. Um, it doesn't reduce it, it doesn't put it in an ideological straitjacket, Um, the bird still sings, it still shines, it still is the thing. The poem survives intact. I don't really see any violation of its essential being here. If you want to go back to that naive perspective represented by the curtains are blue meme, um, it's funny because... I think the same type of reader, the same type of student that would um, complain about any notion that the curtains represent something. And the meme gets it wrong, by the way. The teacher doesn't come along telling you what the author meant. They ask you. And so really that meme is... This is about people who don't really want to think about what they're reading. and there are works in literature and other arts and Sontag names some like Joyce uh, that even to get a basic sense of what's going on requires some rather sophisticated interpretive tools there is no obvious apparent uh, meaning to depart from with a esoteric meaning it's you have to dig a little bit even in order to get the basics going. Um, This is something demanded by the art itself, it's not added upon it by a a critic with an agenda. But the same people with the naive view of reading who would have a problem with uh, the notion that there is some uh, meaning to the blueness of the curtains uh, other than that they are blue are usually the same uh, type of reader that has a problem with uh, the later works of James Joyce or perhaps the poetry of Stevens because they don't know what it means uh, and may insist that it doesn't mean anything. and therefore is fraudulent somehow. And it's no good saying that it doesn't mean something, it is something. But I think it's something of a false dichotomy. Uh, As Sontag rightly points out, um, form and content, uh, ideally, they work together or may even be the same thing. But uh, I just want to take note of a number of dichotomies at work in this essay uh, that i noted um, for instance experience versus theory magic versus mimesis and i already talked about my problems with her definition of magic here form versus content of course uh, representation versus expression uh, and I also want to point out that uh, the expressionist view of art is not necessarily non-mimetic, uh, as opposed to the representative view. Um, it's really about inner versus outer uh, world, uh, an, an art as an expression. Uh, is essentially a copy or a representation of, of something in the inner life, so it is also mimetic. Um, doing versus saying, uh, manifest versus latent content, which of course she gets from Freud, um, intellect versus sensation, surface versus depth. And I think there's a bit of an inconsistency. I mean, uh, sometimes she seems to be saying that um, the the dichotomy itself is illusory and, and false um, and other times she uh, sort of reifies that dichotomy with a preference for one particular pole of the dichotomy uh, for instance, preferring surface over depth preferring sensation to the intellect uh, like I said, I think that she's uh, kind of Inverted Platonist. Another dichotomy philosophically is being and becoming, uh, and she would, you know, favor the becoming world, but she wouldn't. Uh, but she would still deal with those uh, terms, as given in, in by Platonism. So, what's potentially at stake here in, in this, um, in this notion of being against interpretation? Well. I mentioned in a previous podcast uh, that there are two dominant schools of reading the works of Thomas Pynchon. Uh, Pynchon writes these vast, complex, confusing, um, tonally varied novels. Um, the first school of Pynchon interpretation is the academic postmodern one, which fundamentally sees Pinchon, in terms of a kind of labyrinth of signs uh, ultimately leading nowhere really um, and its function might be sort of parodic uh, but it ultimately refers to itself or to other literature and not to uh, the world as such. It's not mimetic in relation to history although it appears to be because all of his, uh, Pinchon's works take place Uh, within they're embedded within historical events and often deal with obscure historical events Um, and they they present a paranoid uh, conspiracy theory view of the world that uh, point seem to point towards some esoteric meaning to things but then also kind of pull back or complicate that where we're not given an answer uh to that we never get to the depth um and we never get out of the labyrinth let's say um and so Pichon is seen as a a postmodernist in that way um you know it's another labyrinth without a minotaur another conspiracy story without a, a revelation of the conspirators um but there's a much less, uh, and that's the dominant uh, institutional reading of Pynchon, uh, there's a minority view um, out in the wilds of the internet, the leftist parapolitical view. Um, although Pinchon fans sometimes include conservatives or right-wingers, but the the General approach or stance or tone to Pinchon uh, appears to be left wing, uh, left libertarian, even. Uh, but this school holds that no, actually, um, Pinchon is about real historical events. And it's about people and Groups and things happening in history, um, but they're not directly alluded to generally. One leftist podcaster has argued that the crying of Lot 49 contains oblique references to the Kennedy assassination and to occult figures like Jack Parsons. Um, Clearly, there are allusions to um, Project Paperclip and MKUltra rather disturbingly because the book came out in like 1966 or something like that, uh, which, by the way, the same year that uh, Against Interpretation came out. And so, uh, but in order to plausibly make these claims, uh, one has to do an esoteric Reading one has to take signs and argue uh, that there's a difference between surface and depth and runs the risk of setting up what uh, Sontag refers to as a shadow world of meaning um, and would have to claim that this shadow world is in fact uh, something we are intended to uncover um, there really is something at stake in the difference of approach between these two things. Um, now, uh, personally, I do think there's something to the parapolitical approach to Pynchon. Um, but I do sometimes also get frustrated with people who treat uh, works of art as like not works of art, as uh, some kind of code meant to be... Uh, solved so that we get some kind of answer and once we've got that answer then the the work that we have read to get there can kind of be dispensed with as like uh, so much packaging and that what we're really after are these secrets even though my own podcast can tend in that direction sometimes I even adopted the tagline learn to decode I mean, that was kind of an offhanded thing that I came up with one day just as a a funny play on the learn to code meme. I'm not really uh, offering like a program of (laughs) systematic decoding here. But it remains true that, that artworks mean things and it's one of the things that they do. Um and it's how they work in essence that said I think uh, the urging of formalism uh, that she has here there's a lot to be gained from that Um, it's certainly a better thing to do than the very cheap modes of interpretation that we tend to employ now when everything is over-politicized. I mean, if she thought Marxism and Freudianism uh, in literary interpretation was uh, an ideological reduction, I wonder what she would think now when everything is... all all that could be extracted by anybody is some political cliche that's discussed on social media every day and that usually has to do with basically demographic categories um, and then you get this other kind of cheap mode of interpretation uh, where you, you see these videos I, I hardly ever watch them um, but they're like clickbaity type of things that uh, take a movie and they say "Oh, well, blank ending explained they take some you know uh, sort of confusing movie uh, or anything with any sort of ambiguity to it, and they try to, like, tell you what it is supposedly saying. That, I think, is a very reductive and, and non-formalist uh, sort of approach. Um, but just to throw the the parapolitical crowd a, a bone here... Um, and to go back to the um, the idea of the esoteric uh, interpretation of, of somebody like Pynchon, um, I, I want to uh, point out that the acknowledgments that come before the first essay in this volume against interpretation um, says, last I wish to record my gratitude to the Rockefeller Foundation for a fellowship last year, which freed me for the first time in my life to write full-time, during which period I wrote, among other things, some of the essays collected in this book. Now, you might want to think for a moment about why the Rockefellers would pay somebody to write uh, against the notion of interpreting art. Uh, There was definitely something called the Cultural Cold War that included things like the CIA funding, um, abstract expressionist art, among other things. Now, I don't think this invalidates everything that they touched, but you might want to think about that context. Now, I mean, let's not be naive. The only way you get to Make a living spending all your time reading books and going to films and art museums and writing whatever you want about them without being embedded within a university or some other institution like that is to take money from the Rockefellers. That's how you get to be a public intellectual. <laughs> and very few uh, people that we might admire in that sphere are going to come away with clean hands. Marshall McLuhan got Ford Foundation money, by the way. Um, she devotes an essay in this book to Norman O. Brown, a psychoanalytically oriented uh, philosopher who was in the OSS along with uh, Herbert Marcuse. At any rate, uh, I think there's a lot of value here, nonetheless. Um, um, one of the leftist parapolitical posters on Twitter, I forget who, um, during the sontag Polya, uh row that was going around, um, posted something about Susan Sontag as a neoconservative, which is kind of interesting. Um, she took certain stances, which aligned with the neoconservatives on foreign policy in the 90s during the whole uh, Bosnian conflict and so on. Um, That's kind of interesting given the um, sort of left libertarian bent of this particular essay. The concern here seems to be liberation. Uh, But to that, I I would would say I I don't know, but look at the roots of the neoconservative movement and you're going to find some... Uh, probably some intertwining uh, people and places, let's just say. but I think there's a lot of interesting things to think about here. Um, but I believe that uh, hermeneutics is an inevitable uh, part at least of literature um, and perhaps of life itself i I think the the dichotomy uh, is ultimately false, that uh, there is no human being without human meaning. Thank you for listening.